3: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's World Cup Day. You didn't think we were going to totally ignore the world's most popular sporting event? Match 55 of the tournament, Morocco v Spain, is just wrapping up. We'll talk about team performances, but the politics of the World Cup are complex every tournament, but especially this year. FIFA, the sport's international ruling body, sure seems corrupt any time a journalist looks closely. And the games are held this year in Qatar, a government that has brutally repressed queer people and that Human Rights Watch says denies women the right to make many key decisions about their lives. So let's talk. Are you watching the games? Do you feel good about it? Who should win? The right answer is Brazil, no? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I love sports, and I also sometimes find myself wondering, why do I do this to myself? The agony of defeat is one thing, but it's also just the way you wire yourself up to a game, a team, a nationalism, a set of storylines, and ultimately, a business. I do it because I love texting with my dad and my friends about the latest Mbappe goal, and I love the beauty of these bodily geniuses out there. But because I'm always right on the edge of losing my fandom, the politics of the game and its ruling forces, whether it's the NFL, NCAA, or FIFA, are never very far from my mind. It's entertainment, sure, but that doesn't mean it's not happening in the real world. So this morning, we're going to work a little bit in both modes. Fandom, yes, but we're not totally checking our ethics at the door, as I'm sure FIFA would prefer we do. Joining us here on The Pitch... We've got Paul Tenorio, senior writer covering soccer for The Atlantic. Welcome, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We've also got Sarath Ganji, a uh, foreign policy and communications expert. Welcome. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, has a great uh, interview in the publication, The Signal, about this topic. We've also got Amelia Lopez, writer and digital content creator for Footmex Nation and soccer analyst and co-host of the Mexican Soccer Show podcast. Welcome, Amelia.
4: Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having me.
3: Um, Paul, we're gonna start with you. You just got back to the States from Doha. Tell us about where we are in terms of the uh, tournament. By the way, it's still, for any fans out there, it's still 0-0 in the Morocco
2: <laughs> spade match in the 99th minute. Yeah, we're into the knockout rounds. Obviously, a few of the games have been played, including the U.S.'s game in the round of 16, which they lost to the Netherlands. Um, but a few more round of 16 games to go, and then we're on to the quarterfinals. So. Basically, we're we're down to the last, what, 12 teams or so in the tournament. Yeah. So for people who aren't fans of the World Cup, the
3: knockout round is basically when we go to like the single elimination tournament. And what precedes that is like the group stages, right? And that's where you play everybody in your group. Um, How did the
2: U.S. team do in that sort of group stage? Well, they did really well. Um, They finished in second place, which advanced them to the knockout, but I think You know, performance wise, which was the more important part for the US to show the public that they could play well, that they could compete with top teams. And I think they certainly did that. They opened up against Wales, a team that is very difficult to match up against. It's a team that likes to defend um, in a low block, which means most of their defenders behind the ball, uh, making it difficult to score against them. Uh, and that that matchup was tough for the U.S., which is a team that likes to play in transition, which means they, they like to kind of counterattack and, and play into space. Um, the U.S. had a one nothing lead late in the game in the 82nd minute, gave up a penalty kick to Gareth Bale, one of the, the better forwards of this generation. and And Bale ended up scoring that penalty to tie it. So a bit disappointing that they got the draw there. Went to the game against England, which was the marquee game of this group. England is one of the favorites in the tournament, probably a top four, top five pick for for most people. And the U.S. was the better team in that game against England. They they controlled the game. The midfield of Eunice Musa, Weston McKennie, Tyler Adams, who are going to be around for for quite a while for this U.S. team. All of them, 20 feet, 24 years old or younger. Eunice Musa just twenty years old. Um, you know they controlled that game, and and the U.S. Uh, ended up getting just one point out of it, a zero-zero draw. But I think, you know, showed that they were capable of competing against the best teams in the world. And, and that put a lot of pressure on the final game of the group stage, which, which was against Iran. The U.S. needed to win. Iran needed just a draw to advance, um, which certainly set a, a very tense tone around the game, uh, mm-hmm. in the game. Uh, and the U.S. was able to get a one nothing win and and advance. So I think when you look at the results, the fact that they got out of the group, um, but also the way they played, especially against England, overall a really positive tournament and disappointment for sure in the way that the the tournament ended, the World Cup ended for them, losing 3-1 to the Netherlands. But I think considering it was the second youngest team in the tournament, that was kind of the baseline of what I mm-hmm. expected, what most people expected. Yeah,
3: Amelia Lopez, our producer Blanco, would definitely argue that the most popular team in the U.S. by <laughs> fan base is Mexico's side. So what was it like covering them this year in Doha?
4: Um, It was difficult. I think from a fan standpoint, um, you know, just kind of like in the U.S., the Mexican national team fans definitely make a name for themselves, bar none. I was in Russia in 2018, and it had a very similar feel. And when you see Mexico fans all together, it's something incredibly special, Um, whether that's bias or just from the outside. You know, it's very much a a positive spectacle in that sense. But the team itself um, wasn't. You know, even leading up to the World Cup, they had just lost against Sweden 2-1. And I think under um, Tata Martino, who is now no longer the coach, you mm. know, it was just kind of rocky. You know, mm-hmm. it, it never felt like fully formed. It never felt um, like there was a very cohesive system. And there was a lot of pessimism before you the fans got to Doha, where, you know, many didn't think that they were going to do much. And then... You know, as is World Cup craziness, Argentina loses to Saudi Arabia and you kind of start thinking, well, maybe we can beat Poland. You know, maybe something can happen. But even that first game was indicative of there just is not enough with this team under Martino. Mm -hmm. And you drew against Poland. Then, you know, just kind of like what Paul was saying, you know, we had our marquee match against Argentina, which you didn't think much about, but we had beat... Um, Germany in 2018 you know we had tied against Brazil we have a history with Mexican soccer of maybe achieving the impossible against these top teams but you know just going along with the way the team has performed it wasn't going to happen against Argentina so you lose 2-0 there and then you know all the way that the group stage works you if you score just enough goals or if argentino or if poland won you know you might make it out of the group stage into the round of 16 which is something that mexico alongside i think just brazil has done consecutively for several world cups um but it just wasn't enough you know we we won two one and you definitely saw a more eager offensive side from mexico but You know, it just, it didn't be, it wasn't enough, unfortunately. And so you actually get the worst performance from Mexico in in recent history, not, you know, failing out of the group stage, getting third place. So it was underwhelming
3: to say the least. Yeah. We are talking about what's happening on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, there uh, in Doha, with Paul Tenorio, senior writer covering soccer with The Atlantic, Amelia Lopez, you just heard, writer and content creator for Footmex Nation, as well as Sarath Gonji, uh, foreign policy and communications expert, who was interviewed by The Signal for the recent article Game Within the Game about what he calls sports, watch, uh, sports washing. We'd love to hear from you. What has your experience been watching the World Cup, if you are watching? Or if you aren't watching, why not? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Of course, we're KQED Forum. And you know the email. It's forum at kqed.org. Uh, Sarath, let's talk a little bit about off the field. I think listeners might need a quick little primer on FIFA and how FIFA came to be seen the way that they are.
5: Of course. Uh, So FIFA is the world governing body for football. Um, It has uh, played a key role in the sport because it hosts the World Cup, uh, arguably the greatest spectacle in in all sports, if not just general mega events and entertainment. Um, what's interesting about FIFA right now is that um, over the past uh decade in particular um, it's had to fend off a lot of criticism and investigations from a number of national authorities uh, from the United States to Switzerland to France over uh, any number of corruption allegations that have been linked to the broadcasting rights and the hosting rights to its World Cup and so, Um, This year Qatar is the host, 2018 Russia was the host, Um, before that Brazil and before that South Africa. Um, Each of those have come under uh, the spotlight for what was seen as a small group of executive members of FIFA um, using their status uh, as members of this executive committee uh, with vast control over which countries and which companies get to host and hold the rights to these events, um, that they were able to to leverage that to uh, pocket hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars to steer these, these different rights. Mm -hmm. to different countries and groups. Um, This isn't anything unique to Qatar, in other words, um, since its World Cup in particular is is had to fend off a lot of these allegations. Uh, This has been going on for a long time uh, and goes back to the 1970s in particular when uh, at the time you saw a transition in the model of FIFA as, ostensibly a nonprofit organization that somehow reaps billions of dollars. Uh, the mm-hmm. reason it did that is because um, it transitioned from a pure professional organization into more of a commercial operation where sports sponsorships, including its very famous one with Coca-Cola um, ahead of the uh, 1978 Argentina World Cup, um, sort of took off and, and allowed the organization mm-hmm. to start looking at itself as a revenue-generating enterprise. And, and then that transitioned into the late 90s as set bladder uh, the Swiss man took over um, and we saw that really take off uh, in terms of uh, the spectacle of the game.
3: And like this decision, though, to, you know, it's the first World Cup played in the Middle East. It's also played in, in an authoritarian country. Um, why was this decision seen as so questionable back when it was made in 2010 uh, all the way to present day?
5: Yeah, uh, the first interest that we really see reported uh, by Qatari officials in in the event and spitting rights was 2008. Uh, At the time, you only really had one stadium in the entire country that could accommodate a major sporting event, certainly not a mega sporting event like the World Cup. That was Khalifa Stadium. Um, And yet, by uh, the standards of FIFA, you needed at least nine stadiums uh, to be able to accommodate a World Cup. Ordinarily, those stadiums are spread out across a vast expanse uh, so that you have teams and fans in different cities that are involved and able to travel around for these events. Qatar, meanwhile, is the size of a Connecticut or a Jamaica. Uh, it has a population the size of a Nevada or a Mississippi. And so there was uh, a lot of concern over whether the country could actually meet the technical requirements to put on this event. Once you brought in any number of uh, football teams and fans, uh, what kind of congestion would they experience, um, to what extent a country where the national population numbers maybe 300,000 in a total population of 3 million uh, actually have the sort of technical expertise and services like, say, crowd control and mm. security to be able to uh, route different members uh, across uh, the city. And so mm-hmm. despite uh, failing a number of technical uh, checks, uh, Qatar was still able to win the bid in 2010. Mm.
3: We're going to talk about more about that when we get back. We're talking about what's happening on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup, listening to some of the uh, World Cup songs uh, during this show. Joined by Sarath Gonji, uh, foreign policy communications expert, Paul Tenorio, senior writer at The uh, Athletic, and Amelia Lopez, a writer and digital uh, content creator. What's your experience been watching the World Cup? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after
6: the break.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what's happening on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup. Talking with uh, Miley Lopez, writer and digital content creator for Footmex Nation. Uh, she's also the co-host of the Mexican Soccer Show podcast. Sarath Ganji, foreign policy and communications expert, uh, who was interviewed by The Signal publication uh, about uh, sports washing this uh, and this World Cup. The uh, article, if you want to find it, is called Game Within the game. And we're also joined by Paul Tenorio, senior writer covering soccer with The Athletic. Um, You know, Paul, I wanted to ask you about how you think fans deal with the corruption of a sport. You know, we see it in the NCAA. Sometimes people talk about it with things around the NFL. All the issues are sort of separate and distinct for these different organizations. But how do you think that affects the way that fans approach the game?
2: Well, I think Sadly, um, football fans, soccer fans around the world are are accustomed to this. They're used to the way that the game has been run. And there's a feeling, I think, almost of helplessness that that nothing is really going to change. I mean, we saw the fallout from this World Cup bid back in 2010. And and the fact that Sepp Blatter was finally forced out and you think that change is going to come. And then Infantino steps in and it feels like nothing really is changing. And at times, maybe even getting worse, there is you know this attitude within fifa leadership that they are untouchable that they know best and um that their decision making is is flawless which we know obviously not to be true we not just <laughs> from our public perception of it but of the investigations that the us government has run that's led to indictments on the way fifa has has gone about doing business so you know what's been interesting is you see at times fans trying to take a stand in different ways that they can. I mean, for example, many Danish fans didn't travel to this World Cup in protest of the fact that it, um, mm-hmm. that it was in Qatar and and because of the issues that existed around the tournament, um, and and I you you know I think that's kind of an example more of the kind of extreme example of fans really taking a stand, but we've seen pushback in many different ways, um. And, and I think, you know, what it shows, I think, is the helplessness of, of fans in situations like this, mm-hmm. that even with all of the feelings that exist around FIFA, around the way that they govern, around um, the things that have been exposed, uh, the payments that were made to vote uh, in a certain way, the fact that indictments have happened, um, that still there is a belief that, that FIFA is going to continue operating that way and that there's not really much that fans can do about it. Um, I don't think it alters the fandom of the game itself or of the teams you support, but certainly it creates a sort of cynicism around FIFA led tournaments, whether that's um, the world cup, the women's world cup uh, or, or kind of any other governance structure uh, led by FIFA. There, there's just a belief that it's not going to be done the right way. And and it, it kind of makes, I think people sad uh, for what it could mean mm-hmm. for the game itself. I mean, even looking forward to 2026, you know, they decided to expand the World Cup with the idea that it would include more people around the world and be able to bring smaller nations into this tournament and, and create popularity around the tournament. But it was done in a way where we still don't even know what the structure of the tournament will look like with 48 teams. Will there be three team groups or four teams? How are they going to structure it? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, fans are frustrated by that. And it's just another sign that there's there's very little belief that, that FIFA kind of knows what they're doing or they're, that they're like, trying the doing. Has the best interest of the, of the game. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. right,
3: right, right. You know, Sir, I, I wanted to talk more, a little bit more broadly about the way that authoritarian governments, particularly in the Middle East, have been buying into sports and soccer. Why is that? You know, because for, for those who don't know, some of like the British Premier League teams have been, have been purchased. Um, some of the, the, the big team in Paris uh, has been purchased by the Qatari government. So tell, what's going on there uh, for those who haven't been following this closely?
5: Sure. So as I'm sure the viewers know well, uh, countries in the Middle East and the Arabian Gulf in particular, and I'm thinking here about Qatar, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, their economies are fueled by hydrocarbon deposits and then investments. Uh, Natural gas and oil are a big part of what allows their economies to boom and allows them to, to spend money big. But the leaders in these countries know that that's not going to be the future of their economies, and so they need to diversify. Sports, alongside any number of other globalized sectors, including higher education and healthcare and commerce and global media and tech, these are all areas in which uh, these autocratic states have started pulling in more funding uh, based on uh, the vast wealth that they've put into their sovereign wealth funds. Um, And so... Uh, sports is one area where these three countries in particular have invested, uh, partly because it's a pretty porous sector. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Manchester City is a uh, historic team based in the UK, right, in Manchester. Um, and it wasn't difficult for an Emirati private equity firm linked to the ruling family of the UAE to just buy up the club Um and, and uh, remarkably, that's not the only club that private equity firm has has bought up. There are, I believe, eleven teams now around the world in which it has uh, a stake. Uh, some have referred to this as the Disneyfication of football. Um, really, what we're seeing is is a sector in which uh, profits uh, and revenues are are thought to be there. Uh, in which it's it's not well regulated. Uh, we know that on the side of, of FIFA and the corruption, but even at the confederate level and the federation level, uh, these are all organizations that are just looking for funds to stay afloat, particularly in a post-financial crisis and, and COVID uh, recession era. And so uh, if you're a Gulf autocrat with funds, these are federations that are, are, are welcoming them. And it's not just welcoming them through the purchase of their teams. They do it through media broadcasting deals. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have uh, BN Media, Group, uh, which is a cuttery broadcaster that has investments in 43 countries around the world, meaning if you're in France and you want to watch a, a local football game with the, the League One teams uh, in the fix, uh, you're going to get your content from uh, a cuttery broadcaster, not a local one like Canal+. Plus. Um, you also see this in the form of sponsorships. So um, Qatar Airways, uh, I'm sure many people are seeing that uh, on their broadcasts uh, across their TVs for the World Cup. Uh, but even when you watch uh, local matches in Europe um, or in Latin America, you might see uh, those same sponsors popping up. Um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are doing it as well. Um, and this ends up being both uh, an avenue for diversifying their economies, but also uh, places these countries' interests very much in uh, the fabric of open societies in Europe, North America, Oceania, and elsewhere. Mm.
3: Such a, I mean, it's a tactic that seems like it's working. Um, Mike in uh, Daily City, welcome to the show.
7: Hi there. This is about how the um, Games or the World Cup should be awarded and decide Mm -hmm. who the host country is. And this would apply to Olympics as well. I think FIFA or the Olympic Committee should just have a list. And I want to you know, have the smaller countries and coalitions of countries be allowed to host these games, which now they get awarded the games, and six or eight or ten years later, they're never on time, or are never up to standard for all the infrastructure and facilities and transportation mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. necessary. So my solution is to have a country qualify first, by FIFA's standards for everything from hotels to transportation to villages to whatever's needed to host the games and then they would pretty much be guaranteed to be in a rotation sort of like the Super Bowl works where if you do put the time and money in you know you'll get the games in three or four you know cycles and that way you don't have these mad scrambles to meet standards and exploit workers and whatever else goes on they can take their time and be ready and get on the list. Yeah.
3: Hey, thank you for that, Mike. And, you know, Amelia, since you were there, I mean, did it feel like things were finished or did it feel like, you know, as, as Mike is describing, you know, the, the infrastructure and there's been a lot of stories about this, the infrastructure wasn't quite complete?
4: Yeah, no, I think on all levels, you know, whether it was the villages, um, you know, restaurants and even from what I heard, you know, like there's these, um, like, like specific like fifa designated like hospitality hotels right so this is like peak luxury-esque places you know they were literally taking plastic off at certain points at the very beginning of the tournament you know and it just it does it makes you wonder um you know from a infrastructure standpoint you know was this the ideal choice to make um because there was you know, almost 10 years worth of time for you to get everything going and to kind of have it feel very much like a commercial activation where everybody's just scrambling at the last second to get it done. Um, Yeah, you know, it it definitely felt like that. Um, I went to visit some of the fan villages, uh, you know, as far as like a week and a half in, you know, so it was almost towards the end of group stage matches. And there were very clearly, you know, quote-unquote like dinner tents you know dining halls that were still not completed um you know and so it just felt like that consistently you know it was yeah I I wrote about it in in a blog you know at least gilded gives you the perception that everything is fine but this was not even gilded you know it was very much like a masquerade but the you know the Mm. mask isn't even really like Mm. hiding anything so to speak
3: the glue showing yeah (laughs) um you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other uh, political issues that came up during the, during the tournament. Um, Paul, I'm going to come to you on this because I think you were actually at this press conference uh, before the Iran-U.S. match. We have a cut of U.S. team captain Tyler Adams, uh, who is African-American, answering a question from an Iranian journalist who corrected his mispronunciation of Iran and asked, are you OK to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own Borders. so let's listen in
6: my apologies on uh the mispronunciation of your country um yeah that being said you know there's discrimination uh everywhere you go um you know one thing that i've learned especially from living abroad in the past years and uh having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures um is that in the US we're we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day you know growing up for me i was I, I grew up in a in a white family with an obviously an african american heritage and background as well so um i had a little bit of uh, different cultures and i, I was very very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures so um you know not everyone has that that ease and uh, the ability to do that and obviously it takes longer to understand and through education i think it's it's super important like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of of your country so um, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think as, as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing.
3: Paul, tell us a little bit more. I mean, this sounds like it was a, a pretty heated press conference, obviously, between two countries, at least whose governments, not our peoples necessarily, but whose governments have been kind of at each other in, in intense ways for a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was it was a very intense press conference. The energy around it from kind of start to finish was heightened. Um, part of that, a big part of that, I think, was that U.S. soccer decided to remove the emblem of the Islamic Republic from the Iranian flag on some of their social media posts in the days leading up to the game. They said that was in support of those protesting for uh, women's rights, for the rights of uh, women to go to soccer games, to um, to fight back against the morality police um, and uh, with what occurred with Masamini, who uh, died in custody. That decision, um, U.S. Soccer actually backed out of a couple days later. They they took down those social media posts, but I think it added to what was already going to be a very tense environment because of the political history between the two countries. I thought that moment that you played from Tyler Adams was striking. Uh, he's 23 years old, mm-hmm. and he you know didn't seem rattled all, at all by it. And I think the way that he acknowledged his his mistake in in pronouncing Iran, um, the way he he spoke directly to the person who asked the question and and said, you know, thank you for educating me or, or that we should work to educate each other. Um, it, it kind of brought that energy level down a little bit and, and, and calmed things um, for just, for just a touch. But I thought the press conference and the game in general highlighted the fact that no matter what, you know, this world cup and sport in general is never going to be able to be separated from politics. Uh, international sport comes with that. And, that night in the next night after the press conference at the game itself, that energy that we felt in the press conference was, was there elevated. um, the energy in the crowd, Iranian supporters, um, fighting, you know, between each other, the tension between those that were there to support the government, um, that, you know, there were reports that they had been flown in those that were there to protest. You could feel the tension around the stadium in the lead up to the game in the stadium during the game. And, and that added to, uh, a game that was a, um, a, a must win for both ga- for both teams, or at least must get a result. Um, and it, it just spoke to, I think, kind of how, um, how difficult it is to, to go to a world cup and, and to try to say, Oh, this should just be about football, which is what right. FIFA tried to say and others tried to say, because it can't ever be that. And, and whether it's a game like this one between the U S and Iran, whether it's discussions around, Um, What happened in building up the infrastructure in the stadiums in Qatar, whether it's about the politics of FIFA itself, um, it it just it can't be separated. And I think that press conference for me sitting there um, was just a stark reminder of that. Yeah, We're talking about what's been happening on and
3: off the field at the 2022 World Cup. In Qatar, you've also heard it pronounced Qatar and many other ways. You can. It's, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of squishiness around the pronunciation of the, of the country. Uh, we're joined by Paul Tenorio, senior writer covering soccer with The Athletic, Sarath Ganji, foreign policy and communications expert, Amelia uh, Lopez, writer and content creator for Footmex Nation, co-host of the Mexican Soccer Show podcast. We're curious, I mean, did you decide not to watch the World Cup because it was being hosted uh, in Qatar? because of women's rights human rights lgbtq rights that did it make it so that you couldn't actually uh enjoy the sport that you want to uh the number is 866 6786 that's 866-733-6786 twitter facebook instagram or kqed forum and the email is forum at kqed.org um I want to bring Ian Collar before the break. Um, get back into the fandom side, this, this mode here a little bit. Uh, Mike in Oakland, welcome.
7: Hey, how's it going? Long time, first time. I wanted to address uh, Amelia Lopez's take on the Mexico team. And I thought it was, I, I couldn't get in line with her take because it, she pushed it as Mexico underperforming when in reality, like, I don't think Mexico underperformed because how do you underperform when no one expects anything from you? I don't think she cited a few outliers of like the Brazil result and the Germany result, but over the course of a hundred years of playing the game, those are two matches and no one, no one in the buildup to the world cup, no one had Mexico going far. No one had Mexico doing anything. No one expected anything from Mexico. I think they're bang average. And that's what we saw on the pitch. So I don't think they underperformed. I'm, I'm sure it's you know it's a disappointment for the for the fans. But in the end, I think this club came and made up the numbers, and that's that's what we saw on the yeah. pitch.
3: You gave them uh, meets expectations, <laughs> Amelia. I want to give you a chance to respond.
7: Um,
4: I mean, I think it's underwhelming when you think of the past World Cup performances. I think. And I said this on the podcast several times. You know, I did not think they were going to get out of the group stage. I think when you look specifically at the match against Poland, um, you know, that is a game where you should have scored more goals, right? You should have done a lot more. And they didn't. And that's something that under Martino's reign, we consistently saw. Um, Once Raul Jimenez got injured in 2020, you know, he failed to really get out of his, his system. You know, he couldn't adjust. He brought on Funes Mori to kind of be... A Raul Jimenez replacement. Um, but I think given Mexico's past history, which again, Mexico alongside, I think, both, I believe it's Brazil, is the only team to ever qualify out of the round of 16. Um, and yes, historically, that is the only place that we can get to. It's why everybody is consistently dreaming of that quinto partido that's so infamous. Um, but it's underwhelming when you look at the fact that they have Qualified out of the group stage. And they were what, maybe one goal from Argentina and two goals that were marked off sides for themselves um, during that game against Saudi Arabia. So I think it's underwhelming when you look at the historical context of what they're capable of doing and what they have done to not qualify out of the group stage is a total failure. Um, I think a lot of the players said that after the game as well. Um, so that's where you say it's underwhelming because given what they've been able to do in World Cups and given what they could have even done in certain matches, especially that Saudi Arabia game, a different team under a different system probably scores the goals that they need. Does that satisfy you? No. I've always said, like, we should strive for more. But under the system, under the way that the players have played, that's where it's underwhelming for me.
3: Also, isn't it part of sort of like Mexico fandom to just, you know, to have no expectations, but also there's that little nubbin of hope that's in there saying like, well, maybe this year, even though we looked bad in the qualifying tournaments, maybe this year we're going to be good anyway. Um, We're talking about what's happening on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup.
0: Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more.
3: Right
7: after this.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what's happened on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup. There in Doha. We're joined by Paul Tenorio, senior writer covering soccer for The Athletic. Sarath Gonji, a foreign policy and communications expert who was interviewed by The Signal for the recent article Game Within the Game about sports washing by authoritarian governments. And Amelia Lopez, who's a writer for Footmex Nation and co host of the Mexican Soccer Show podcast. We're going to get back to the phones. Uh, Bruce in the Bronx, welcome.
8: Howdy, hey. Um, I love the fact that it's called the beautiful game, but I still don't understand it. <laughs> That's why I like watching it with uh, with my Brit friends. Uh, I would have, I was protesting it the fact that it's in Qatar and all the horrible stories about the poor workers. But uh, my Brit friend insisted I watch. I, uh, to me, it's like Brownie in motion. I just don't get it. I see the ball going back <laughs> and forth, but i ha I also have to say with all due respect to your your guest who covers the mexican team uh I think you know the thing about their fans their fans are really outrageous. I was at a game at Stanford many years ago, and they're all chanting out uh you know uh, uh, you don't, know, don't me- say any uh, bad words mexico, on the radio. Yes. yeah <laughs> mexico yes so osama ben i mean osama bin Laden yes Yankee no. Uh, and, and, of course, there's been all that controversy about this homophobic chant that they do, which I don't quite understand. But, yeah. you know, the U.S. team is great. I, I mean, they're a great bunch of guys. They're it's, it's incredible. All these guys are so handsome, it's ridiculous. And I think that's a big calling. <laughs> Definitely and, and part I'm of the
3: very... uh, entertainment of soccer uh, for many people. Yeah, I yeah,
8: think. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the entertainment, my friends, when I do watch a game, we're always, like, really taken aback how excellent the the acting is so when <laughs> you see a slow motion hit and they didn't even touch each other and these guys rolling around on the ground. You know, that that's incredibly creative. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the last point, the last thing I'd like to say is I really like this thing at the end with the time added. I think maybe that would be a fun thing to do in the NBA, like with the referees just saying, hey, let's play 10 more minutes. That'd, that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs>
3: Um, thank you, Bruce in the Bronx. Um, Amelia, you know, the Mexican fans are very intense and uh, known for some chance. Um, what do you what do you think? Like, wh- what do you make of some of these controversies, particularly as people try and uh, move fandom away from maybe some of its more machismo and homophobic elements?
4: Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's a conversation worth having. It's a conversation I've definitely had with fans, with colleagues. Um, you know, it's a very conflicting discourse, which it shouldn't be. You know, it's conflicting discourse in the sense of the definition. I think when it comes to the effects that it has to the national team, which I'm not saying is the right reason to to eradicate it. Right. But I think everybody's in agreement there. If you already know from a fan standpoint that there could be punishment for the national team. You know, why do it? Why say it? Why continue bringing it up? You know, something in particular, which, again, I'm not saying that, you know, morally this is the right way to have an intention to get rid of it. Um, But it was heard during this World Cup as well. Right. And there were moments, I believe, during the last group stage match against Saudi Arabia. Right. When it was like there was there was minutes left. Right. And you had to at least score one more goal to be able to qualify to the group stage match. Um, where people started trying to want to say it, you know, and there were other fans who were like, you're just going to either pause the game or they're going to stop the game. It doesn't help us in any shape, way or form. Um, so the discourse is very much there. I think part of that discourse also is um, generalizing, you know, which I think doesn't help with the progress of what needs to be done when it comes to talking to um, Mexico fans, you know, the Mexican culture, which of course, you know, being Mexican-American, um, there's a different lens that I present. Being here in the US and what I see when I go back to Mexico, whether that's to cover games, whether that's for leisure, you know, just like you mentioned, Alexis, I think historically and culturally, there is still this level of gender dynamics of machismo, you know, machismo that you just mentioned, Um and women are, are still fighting, you know, it's a very infamous thing on the 8th of March for women to go out there and protest and things like that. So mm-hmm. that discourse permeates into soccer because it's such a huge culture for us mm-hmm. um, in Mexico and everything. So, yeah, it's it's a discussion that needs to con- be uh, continued to be had. You know, I think the Federation on the national team level needs to try to have a, a conversation more about like it's not just wrong because you shouldn't say because we're going to get in trouble like no explain have a little bit more strategic digital you know content explaining the history of it and why it's bad and you know what should be done there um that's gonna you know it's gonna it's gonna be an ongoing conversation because we I think we've been having FIFA kind of reprimand us maybe a little bit more significantly at this point than like six years ago right but it's been around the discourse about eradicating it has been around probably since around 2016 um that it's just going to keep going and hopefully in theory right by the time we get to 2026 which is mexico is going to be a host nation there we've done a lot more to kind of you know have it fade out hopefully
3: yeah and of course it's not just Mexican fans, I and mean, we're not the only ones who have done <laughs> these these kinds of chants. I mean, there's a there's a lot of this stuff, uh, particularly around race too in Europe. That's been you know it's it's, it's not the best part of soccer culture, um, in my view. Um, Paul, let's talk a little bit about some of the fun things, like who's left, who we might be rooting for, the Brazilians at Neymar, the French and Mbappe, and of course, you know, Argentina and Messi. Um, One thing
2: we can probably all agree on is we're rooting against the English, though, right, Paul? (laughs) Well, I can't say that on the record, considering the Athletic UK has has quite a a large base of reporters who I just got to spend some time with uh, in Doha. So I tried to I tried to be as nice as possible when we watched the England Senegal game together and and and. You know what? I, I didn't have much to cheer about if I was cheering against England in that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the the great part about the knockouts is we're getting you're you're gonna start getting into some really, really great matchups. Uh France, England, I think we're gonna see some of the best players in the world go at each other. And and that's what you love to see for me personally. Um, when we pull back and, and kind of what this world cup could re- be remembered for, we have to talk about the big name players um, and and what it means to their legacies. And and it starts for me with Lionel Messi. Uh, for me, he's the greatest player who's ever played the game. There is a subset of fans who believe that he has to win a world cup to prove that because Maradona did. And obviously Pelé as well with, with Brazil won multiple world cups. I don't buy into that. I think that Messi's legacy is cemented as the greatest, but I, I think, you know, in order to to truly be believed kind of across the game uh, he needs, he needs to win standing in his way is probably going to be Brazil who for me look like the best team in the tournament by, by a wide margin. And they're going to be a really, really, really hard team to knock out. And unfortunately we're not going to see that game in a final. We're going to see that in a semifinal. Um, Well, we should see that in a semifinal Argentina, Brazil. So you know, for those three teams—France, Brazil, Argentina—I think you could rank as the favorites. Probably Brazil, France, and then Argentina in that order. And um, and then it's the World Cup. You never know. I mean, right now as we're speaking, I watch uh, Morocco beat Spain in penalty kicks. So um, there's always that that little edge there as well. That this is a World Cup, and anything can happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amelia, what are you? Who are you rooting for? Are you going to root like take a Pan
3: Latin American approach here and root for Messi, or are you uh, rooting against him? Oh,
4: I don't know. It's such a conflicting feeling um, just because he missed a PK against Poland that could have put Mexico. And I'm just kidding. They they didn't deserve to get (laughs) out of the green stage. Um, But I mean, the the beauty of sports, right, is that is those narratives sometimes. So there is a part of you that's like, you know, he already got Copa America. Why not get the World Cup? The only unfortunate reality, right? There's the dream and then there's the reality is that I don't see Argentina as as strong as they could be. I think they've been facing a lot of injuries. And I think even this match against Australia, which they very much dominated, they had these little issues happening for them. Um, we're not allowed to, I think one of the producers said, we can't give out the result for, for Spain or Morocco. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but I I really like the way Brazil played yesterday. I think it was some of the most beautiful work that has happened. Um, you know, just a performance on the field, so I don't know, I think right now you know elimination rounds are are a different a different game after group stage, so i I see Brazil as a favorite right now. I see them very cohesive and everything like that, yeah,
3: um, you know, Sarath, I wanted to come back to you. I mean, can this all be done better so that people can enjoy the game without becoming as entangled in. You know, the, the organizational and political realities around it, like, is there a way to do it or are sports at this point in our sort of globalized economy always going to have these kinds of entanglements?
5: I think entanglements are necessarily going to be a part of it, unfortunately. But, you know, going back to the the first question that uh, caller Mike had brought up about Uh, Having some subset of countries that have already kind of pre-qualified based on uh, initial requirements. uh, There's something of a movement behind that. You saw that years back when FIFA adopted the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, a sort of way of vetting countries Uh, so that uh, we know ahead of time whether they have the civil society apparatus, I'm talking investigative journalists, rights activists, nonprofits, and NGOs that are able to hold accountable government leaders who might otherwise want to uh, bully their way through infrastructure projects, rezoning um, initiatives, uh, and vast public expenditure for private gain at the expense of local communities. And so it was a, a huge lift on the uh, part of the the group led by uh, former Undersecretary of the UN, John Ruggie, and his organization, SHIFT, to make that possible. Uh, We'll see to what extent those kinds of measures are put into place. so far based on uh the number of civil society organizations that have engaged with mexico the united states and canada's organizing committees ahead of the 2026 world cup uh it seems like there are positive developments there maybe where the rubber meets the road is what happens in 2030. Uh, the big question is whether uh a bid currently backed by uh the fifa president to have uh Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Greece potentially hosting the 2030 World Cup, will that actually uh, uh, happen and, and come through? And if so, to what extent is that going to test uh, whether these guiding principles on business and human rights will come to fruition? Mm-hmm. Um, until those kinds of organizations, let's call them the enablers and gatekeepers, uh put into place these kinds of uh, measures, uh, the you know onus rests on us, the fans, to kind of figure out how to navigate it, much like Paul described the helplessness we feel earlier. And I think maybe the easiest way to do that is to, on the one hand, watch the games, uh, and I've certainly been watching all of them, uh, but then have your group chat open and start posting articles by the Guardian or the Sunday Times talking about the very real challenges that uh, folks on the ground are facing in these countries. And I think as long as the awareness is there, then we're at least reconciling in some measurable way some of these entanglements.
3: Yeah. I mean, I have to say it doesn't seem to me like what Doha wanted out of this has happened. It feels like we're talking about that regime's treatment of LGBTQ and people and women way more than we would have if the games hadn't been hosted there.
5: Totally. Um, And I think, you know, the conversation between Amelia and and Caller Bruce was a fascinating one about the sort of challenges of of the culture of of football and and to what extent fans can say some kind of wild things in these these uh, events. Um, One of the reasons uh, uh, an authoritarian state wants to bring people to its shores is because there's a a collective emotional response by people uh, to being in the stadiums, being charged up and then releasing that in forms that depict fan revelry, but they can also kind of turn into some wild directions. Uh, There's great research out of the UK. By anthropologists and sociologists that look at this idea of collective everescence, and how on the one hand it can spin off into kind of wild directions like hooliganism on the other hand it can be harnessed for the sake of reducing prison recidivism rates and so hmm. uh, it turns out that in person experience is really important um and that uh to the extent we can have more rights conscious groups harnessing that for the sake of uh not uh Rekindling or rebranding an autocratic regime's reputation, but rather pointing a light on the, the uh, human rights abuses and shortcomings in these regimes, then we can see maybe a different legacy going forward that future hosts will want to, to learn from. Yeah.
3: Let's do uh, another looking forward kind of question. Paul, um, you know, we, as we've been hearing, you know, 2026 World Cups can be in the Americas. Uh, it's, you know, there'll be some games in the US, some in Mexico, some in Canada, right? Um, what do we have to look forward to in terms of the American men's national team? Like, are are we there? It seems to me like there's a sense of kind of a building momentum within our overall soccer program here.
2: Yes, for sure. Well, first of all, let me apologize if I was playing spoiler. I did definitely did not mean to. Um, but you know, look, this, the reality is for this U S team that this 2022 tournament was always going to be about growth. Uh, in the maturation of a team that came to this World Cup as the second youngest in the tournament, would have been the youngest in the tournament if not for the inclusion of 35-year-old Tim Reem. He jokingly apologized for increasing the average age significantly of this yes. roster. But the core of this team, the, the main players that casual fans know, that diehards know, certainly Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, Sergi Nodes, you can go on down that list, Tim Weah, Gio Reyna, they're going to be back in four years, and most of them are going to be in their prime. Uh, Many of these players are, you know, 23, 24 and younger. And this entire last four year cycle was about kind of refreshing the national team program after missing the 2018 World Cup. And this next four years is going to be very interesting because the hope is that this that this generation of players we you know, there's some debate as to whether this actually is the golden generation, quote unquote, of American soccer. But the hope is that they can grow into this talent that we see from them, this potential, and that when they're in their prime in 2026, they'll be able to compete, actually compete for a World Cup trophy, you know, with the boost of playing these games at home. Um, you know, whether that's true, I think, you know, for any any real soccer fan, when you look at Brazil and Argentina and France, uh, it's tough to, to kind of close your eyes and envision the U.S. competing. But I think it speaks to kind of, how good these young players are or how good they can be and and there is a level of hope that maybe hasn't existed around this program in sometime maybe ever and and i think that's that's what this tournament was about is to to kind of see the potential and now kind of create momentum for the sport and some belief that they can they can do something special in, in four years time let's squeeze in one last call alex in san francisco
3: welcome
9: Welcome, um, Alex from San Francisco. Just wanted to comment on uh, FIFA World Cup and sports in general. Overall, on um, like I'm on my way to work today, and I, I work in restaurants. And as soon as I get there, is you know, amongst the Central American Mexican community, or even just us average Joes throughout the country or throughout the world, just gives us something to talk about. Uh, whether it's just the player making an awesome play, whether it's politics behind the scenes, whether it's just workers' rights or women's rights. It really just helps us uh, stay connected in, into world politics and just society. World affairs, societal yeah. World affairs, period. Because a lot of us are so busy working, sometimes we don't have time to pick up. I do, but some of us, I know, don't have the time to pick up a newspaper or listen to NPR on the way to work. Some you know, some people are already prepping food or washing dishes. Mm-hmm. And it just gives us a voice and, 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 and it's an organization that I think... We'll have better influence in the
3: future. Yeah,
9: you yeah, well, know it. whether it's sports in general.
3: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great uh, ending thought for us here. I mean, particularly just that this is this does bring up all these issues and allows people to talk about it in a way in which they're on the same field, kind of they're in this kind of common ground. Um, and there's some beauty to it. There's some skill. There's some artistry. And there's all the politics that go along with it, like we've been talking about today. Thank you so much. That's a beautiful call, Alex, in uh, in San Francisco. Have a good uh, work day. We've been talking about what's been happening on and off the field at the 2022 World Cup. We've been joined by Paul Tenorio, senior writer, covering soccer with The Athletic. Thank you so much, Paul.
2: Also, welcome back from Doha, yep, Paul. Paint thank you <laughs> uh, thank you so much yeah thank you for having me yes i've i've uh i've just flown back in and it was nice to, to be able to sit and talk and, and
5: review uh, yeah this tournament. yeah for sure
3: also been joined by uh, Sarath Gonji foreign policy and communications expert thanks for joining us
5: this was great alexis thanks so much yeah
3: and we've been joined by amelia lopez writer for footmex nation and co-host of the mexican soccer show podcast thank you so much amelia thank you so much alexis I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio,